Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We've got another big show for you this week. Gerrymandering is on our mind. There's a term called gerrymandering. Some people say Jerry, but it was Gary, G-E-R-R-Y. Okay, look, President Reagan is right. It's true. But we like to say gerrymander, and so that's what we're going to do, gerrymandering. Anyway, former Attorney General Eric Holder will be with us. So will former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. They are both involved with the issue nationally, and they have, as you can imagine, somewhat different views on this topic. But today we start small with a single voice. I wanted to have some way to come together and start fixing this and stop accepting that things are corrupt. That's Katie Fahey. She's a proud Michigander and the subject of a new documentary film called Slay the Dragon. I saw so many people who were just upset with the current way politics had been happening. I saw that there was a pent up energy. I was like, I'm not alone. So I just thought I'd, yeah, try. Katie got an initiative on Michigan's ballot to create an independent redistricting commission. And in 2018, Michigan voters overwhelmingly approved it. The Michigan state constitution opens with all political power is inherent in the people. We are those people. This is our power. Let's go have an independent citizens redistricting commission that restores faith in democracy. She posted something on Facebook. Does anyone want to take on gerrymandering in Michigan? And that's... Eric Goodman. I'm the co-director of Slay the Dragon. Gerrymandering, the age-old process of drawing legislative districts in a partisan way, is interesting for political geeks like me, but not exactly the kind of thing that makes you say, hey, you know what? This would make for an awesome two-hour film. Class, anyone? Anyone? But over the last few years, as lots of regular people have become frustrated with our seemingly intractable political polarization, the issue of gerrymandering has gotten lots more attention. If politicians are elected in districts that are drawn to protect them from losing an election, they're less accountable to voters and more accountable to partisans. But the 2016 election was also a galvanizing event, especially for many Democrats. They may not have paid much attention to politics or the process during the Obama era, but with Trump in the White House, they became much more engaged. And of course, Thanks to the power of social media, many were able to reach into a universe once reserved for political insiders and players. You know, a lot of the story is about the internet and the power of social media because this ignited a movement. I mean, she, within weeks, had hundreds and then thousands of volunteers of both political parties willing to do anything to get this on the ballot. You know, the prognosticators and the big money interests in Michigan poo-pooed the effort. This will never work. This has never worked before. If they happen to get it on the ballot impossibly, well, we'll just sue them into oblivion. They won't be able to proceed. And they tried all of that. And against all odds, this movement worked. And it is totally inspiring story. I, I like a lot of people, was ready to give up on democracy. And then I encounter something like this where a person is using the sort of most basic tools of democracy, their shoe leather, their ability to talk to people, their determination to make a huge difference in one state's politics. 
Yeah, because at every turn, there were these bureaucratic roadblocks in the way. It's not just that you say, I need to get a ballot initiative on the ballot, right? Even if you pass that hurdle, then you have to get 350,000 signatures. Then you have to withstand a court challenge. Then you have to withstand the advertising onslaught. What you saw was time after time, this woman was able to use, as you pointed out, social media. But also it seems like she tapped into this deep-seated frustration with citizens of Michigan across the spectrum. And I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about that because they called this movement voters, not politicians, right? They did, yes. And, yeah. and that was absolutely key. I mean, yeah. The branding of this as a grassroots citizen-led, which it absolutely was, although it was portrayed as a covert Democratic Party operation, I, you know, we were embedded with them. We knew how bipartisan this was. We knew this had no particular partisan ideology other than uh, to rid the state of gerrymandering. And, and they were clever and they were, they were absolutely determined to maintain that bipartisanship so they, could, they were not vulnerable to attacks from the Republican Party. So they turned away offers of help from big Democratic donors until the very last minute when they absolutely needed them. They maintained their independence and they did things the right way. And you're absolutely right. They did tap into something that I think exists across the country, uh, which is a frustration with conventional politics and an absolute you know, disgust at the way that both political parties uh, have entrenched themselves and sort of rid themselves of any real competition. And all the way through, they kept to that narrow message. And and it worked. I mean, I have to say, I, I was discouraged and really almost at times really upset by the sort of tactics used against this group. You saw really the worst of politics brought out, outright lies, manipulation of, you know, the, the sort of PR part of it, you know, attempts to, to depict them in certain ways. Even in the court case, there was all sorts of shenanigans going on against them. But they, they managed to overcome all that by staying true to their essential message, which was a winning message from the word go. Tell us a little bit about how this process would work, what Katie helped to get onto the ballot and now will be the law going into this next round of redistricting in 2021. Sure. In most states, it's the state legislature that redraws the district lines, not only for their own offices, but for the congressional offices. And of course, this puts in their hands enormous power to manipulate the, the boundaries so as to ensure a, an outcome. What Katie's and, and several other states have, have proposed and, and actually now are putting into effect is taking that power away from the state legislature and giving it to a commission of citizens, uh, of ordinary citizens. And in the case of Michigan, it's going to be four Democrats, four Republicans, and five independents. And they are there are all sorts of rules about who they can be. They can't be politicians or related to politicians or have held office. It's really going to be a cross-section of Michiganders. And they are instructed, they are bound not to bring politics into the redistricting process, to leave it on the side. And, you know, this has worked. This has worked in California quite well. It's worked in several other states. You know, they're, they're, they did it very intentionally, very carefully. They took the best practices from other states and implemented them. I have high hopes for it working in Michigan as well. Did you think as you were filming this, this is never going to happen? Well, we were told all along that they wouldn't win, that there would be all sorts of ways of defeating them. But I, honestly, 
I'm an optimist and, and an, a bit of an idealist, and, and you couldn't help but be caught up in what they, these folks were doing. You know, and, and, and again, it's, it was all sort of ages, demographics, races. It was just the best of sort of ideal grassroots political movement. And so, you know, my partner, Chris Durrance, who was my co-director, both of us felt like, put it this way, if they didn't win, we were going to be moving out of the country because this, this was sort of the last stand of democracy, in our opinion. If this couldn't win, if people couldn't get behind this, this was such an obvious to us and I think to most people was sort of an obvious choice here, well, then there was something even more deeply wrong with the system than we had assumed. And so it, it took on the, it took on the stakes of kind of like, in my mind, of sort of, you know, all or nothing. And fortunately, in the end, it really wasn't that close. Once they got on the ballot, beat back the legal challenges and actually put it to a vote to the voters of Michigan, they won a resounding victory. So did you end with the filming of this uh, feeling more optimistic then about sort of the, the, the future here about making the politicians more accountable to voters? Uh, very mixed. I mean, I was extremely inspired by the example of Katie Fahey and by the example of Nick Stephanopoulos and Ruth Greenwood, who are the chief architects of the uh, court case that we follow. These are ordinary people who have taken taken it on themselves to do something that's incredibly inspiring. I had no idea how sophisticated, how interwoven, how connected, how well-endowed the forces of status quo are, the forces of entrenchment are. And I've, in fact, I think I want to do my next film on the, you know, nine plutocratic families that essentially, you know, in many ways run this country. You know, that was a shock, a surprise, how they all sit on each other's boards, how they all invest in, in, in think tanks and in, organ, in nonprofits to further the status quo. It's, it's, it, it was all a big revelation to me. And I think in that regard, I think we, are, we have a long way to go to um, restore our democracy to what we all think it should be. It seems to me that we have a couple of problems that, that yes, that gerrymandering is highlighting it, but ultimately when people are voting party rather than the person, it seems really hard to make politicians more accountable if they are going to, no matter how they vote, their election is determined by what's happening mm -hmm. at the White House. Right. I mean, we're, we're in, a, in a hugely partisan tribal mode right now. Uh, and that's going to have effects all over the place. But the first step towards, I think, revitalizing the democracy is to make elections more competitive. If elections aren't competitive at all, and there's a preordained party winner, then the only incentive for a candidate is to avoid being primaried to his right or to his left or her right or her left. And that means that you, you're going to get even more extremes. Once races are more competitive, then candidates have to be responsive to the people. They have to be really on what the people want. Call me a Democrat, call me a Republican, it doesn't matter. What am I going to do for you? What, how am I going to change your life? How am I going to improve your life? That needs to be the message again. Not how am I going to do things that further you know, advance my party over your party or my ideology, rigid ideology over yours. And, 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 you know, it's, it's when you sever the bond between the voter and the politician that you see, I think, really bad policy. You see policy that doesn't reflect the will of voters. You see weird things happening in Washington, money having undue influence. We need to return the power to the voters. And that's the whole message of Katie Fahey's project in Michigan. And I think 
I think most voters agree with that. And, and um, you know, first step is to get rid of gerrymandering. Are you going to stick with this? Are you going to watch what happens post uh, census in places like Michigan? You said a couple of other places also passed these types of initiatives, Utah, Colorado, I think Missouri. Do you, do you want to follow up on this and see Absolutely. how it goes? Yeah, yeah. no, it's yeah. a fascinating moment because while there are there's good news in some states, there's very bad news in other states. The state of Wisconsin, the state of North Carolina, several other states are, are, are just as gerrymandered as they ever have been. And, and it's a terrible situation. And the Supreme Court, as you know, is looking at this right now uh, with a case that could change everything. So it's a fascinating moment for our film to be coming out. We hope to be part of the conversation, and certainly we hope to follow the story and follow up in, in the future. Barrett Goodman, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, folks, all hour, it's all about gerrymandering. Woo! There ain't no party like a gerrymandering party because it's predetermined. (laughs) Okay, guys. Very funny. Serious. We're going to get down to business. We head first to Wisconsin, where, as governor, Scott Walker was embroiled in a controversy over gerrymandering. Democrats in Wisconsin sued the state back in 2015, arguing that the line drawing done by GOP lawmakers back in 2011 and signed into law by Governor Walker unduly favored Republicans over the Democrats. A federal court agreed. The Republican state attorney general appealed, and in 2017, the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. But they punted it back down to the lower courts, and the legal battle is still ongoing eight years after the original lines were drawn. Meanwhile, Scott Walker is now working on redistricting on a national level as the finance chairman of the National Republican Redistricting Trust. I felt as a Republican that our reforms work. They've worked in Wisconsin. They've worked elsewhere across the country. And if given a fair map, I believe that in the future, they'll continue to be something that works well. And uh, what I fear, and obviously what my concern is, that uh, there are some forces out there, particularly based in Washington, that want to change the redistricting process so that they can just do some gerrymandering to give a uh, partisan advantage at a case where it might not otherwise be. The argument that Democrats make is that, well, Wisconsin was one of the prime examples, actually, of a map that was drawn really in a way that was overwhelmingly biased and tremendously gerrymandered, where the overall vote in the state went to Democrats by more than 50 percent, and yet they held less than a third of the districts. So their argument is it's actually Republicans who haven't been playing fair. But that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of where populations are, not only in Wisconsin, but across the country. In Wisconsin, just like they are in almost every major state across the country, Democrat votes tend to be overwhelmingly concentrated in large urban areas. Republicans tend to do well in suburbs, not only in Wisconsin, but across the country. And then you look at mid-sized cities in Wisconsin are much like many parts of this country as well. They're fairly competitive areas. They're swing districts, as many people would, would say in politics. So when they use this faulty argument, they say, well, statewide... Uh, a state like Wisconsin is a competitive state. It's almost always even. You just had a rec- election the other day for the state Supreme Court, the fall elections for governor. In each case, they were almost 50-50. So why isn't the legislature that way? Well, that's because in places like Madison, which is the second largest city in the state, and not only is it a large city, but the legislative districts within those boundaries overwhelmingly vote Democrat. So you have a high volume of Democrat votes there, people who win 
70, 80, 90 percent of the vote when running for a legislative seat probably have similar numbers in terms of the turnout for statewide elections. You don't have that in other legislative districts across the state of Wisconsin and in other states like ours. And so that's where the boundaries tend to follow where the population is at. Uh, If anything, the argument, I think, for Republicans in Wisconsin and other states like ours is that Republicans do well in competitive districts. Democrats tend to do well in highly concentrated districts where there's a high volume of Democrat votes. But I, I can see that argument on the congressional level. It's very hard to change the state's congressional districts much to make much of a difference in their partisanship. But at the legislative level, even many nonpartisan experts said the way that those districts were drawn was really to maximize every single vote. It wasn't simply going along and keeping communities together. It was splitting up those communities in order to benefit. Oh, no, but then that's another fundamental disagreement. And I would say some of the so-called experts are actually highly partisan and have repeatedly been in the past. So I would contest that that argument to begin with. But a good example, southeastern Wisconsin, large urban area just south of Milwaukee, so not the biggest counties, but you had for years Racine and Kenosha counties uh, each had their own Senate uh, district. And after the last redistricting, it was split One Senate district was east of kind of a a traditional boundary, which was Interstate 94. One district was west of that. Now, on the surface, those so-called experts would say, well, wait a minute, you're dividing up two different counties. Except the difference was those communities east of the interstate, east of I-94, were overwhelmingly urban areas, traditional larger cities, similar type school districts, similar types demographics. Those west were very, very rural. And so actually you put two different communities of interest together in two counties, but with similar demographics together in one Senate district, you put another group of people together in another Senate district, and that matched what the courts have historically talked about, which again is not only the one vote per person, but maximizing communities of interest and maximizing minority voting rights. Do you believe that what Democrats are going to try to do in 2020 is try to draw districts that will benefit them to any degree possible? I think they go much, much further than that. Again, for us to win, all we need to be competitive is to draw even districts. If we don't, and it's why Eric Holder, politically, he's had a very sophisticated, long-term $200 million-plus strategy that has been involved in uh, Supreme Court elections in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, being involved with the Supreme Court in North Carolina. He's been involved selectively not only on legislative races, but even in gubernatorial races in swing states. The idea being that if you can't win by having a Democrat governor and a Democrat legislative majority put maps together that benefit Democrats, his approach has been, well, then split the difference. They'll never agree on anything. A governor will veto what the other party puts and then send it to the courts. And he's tried to just was in Wisconsin the last several months trying to win a Supreme Court race for that exact reason. And They're not shy about it. Last year, they said in Wisconsin, it was a three-part strategy, 18, 19, and 20, with the goal of taking over the state Supreme Court in 2020 so that they could do what they wanted uh, with their agenda. I, for one, believe that the courts aren't for partisan purposes. They're actually there just to uphold the law and the Constitution, most importantly. Do you think that an independent commission that draws maps would be the fairer way to draw maps? 
No, because you're asking people who don't know anything about how boundaries are set up. But for the same reason we changed years ago, they had the same pretense with saying, well, let's have a nonpartisan entity oversee elections. Let's have retired judges do that. That ended up changing. Why? Because Democrat and Republicans alike, you need to have people who actually understand elections, who understand boundaries. And most importantly, you need to have people you can hold accountable. A nonpartisan so-called, and everybody's got a partisan angle. I don't care who they are. It could be left, right, could be somewhere in the middle. But in the end, we don't hand over any other part of the government to people we don't duly elect. Uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, to me, there should be ultimately someone who's accountable. And when you have a commission that isn't elected, you're essentially handing your work over. And we wouldn't, like I said, we wouldn't do it in any other area. We shouldn't do it here either. And speaking of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, you were quite prescient in 2018. Democrats ended up winning a state Supreme Court race there by a pretty big margin. And you had said at that moment, boy, Republicans, you better get ready. This is going to be potentially a really difficult year for the party. Obviously, that turned out to be true at the congressional level nationally. And then in your state, you did end, end up losing... Tell us what you see now in the wake of another Supreme Court race where it looks like the Republican won. There may be a recount. And as you pointed out, the NDRC, the holder back group, was involved there. Were you guys involved in that race? I was personally, but the you know, the Republican State Leadership Council, which is affiliated with the trust, uh, we do work with them as well as several other organizations. They played on a level that I think put us on par with what Holder and a bunch of other groups aligned with Holder had done. But if you look at the pure dollars, outside groups overwhelmingly uh, were with the candidate that ultimately appears to have lost. That was a sign of, I think, a reaction to what happened in the fall, elections for governor, U.S. Senate, and other races out there. So I think it is an indicator. Now, I'd be cautious. I wouldn't read too much into that just because each of the two candidates combined for the court still got fewer votes than each of the individual candidates for governor did, the Democrat and Republican in the fall election. And so come 2020, clearly there's going to be at least twice as many, if not more, uh, voters voting in the presidential election. But I do think it just goes to show that Wisconsin is a classic swing state. And you got to make your case every time. And so looking ahead to 2020, what does President Trump need to do to keep Wisconsin in the red column? I mean, he won it, as you know, by yeah. the smallest of margins in 2016. Two things. One, I think he's got to do, and, and those who support him across the party have to do a better job of explaining the positive things that he's done specifically for the people in the state. I'll give you an example. Most people don't know that the average taxpayer, that's a, a household where two parents are working, two kids at home, that household on average in the state of Wisconsin saves $2,508 because of the president's tax cuts. That's something that I think the president needs to spend more time talking about. And not just that, but other benefits. The trade policy with Canada and Mexico that's now going to benefit dairy farmers. The changes in regulations that help manufacturers and workers in the state of Wisconsin. Secondly, I think he's got to do, which the president, whether you like him or not, I think it's hard not to acknowledge, does a pretty good job of defining his opposition, be it Hillary Clinton in the general election or any of the Republicans running prior to that in the primary process. And so when I look at how far to the left many of the Democrats running uh, for president have gotten, I see things that are completely out of touch with where a lot of people are in the state of Wisconsin. So would you encourage him then to spend less time talking about the wall and more time talking about the economy? 
Yeah, I mean, I think border security is important. I have no doubt about that. But I do think there has been a gap. And a good example of this, CBS did a story not long after the, the tax bill was passed and signed into law. And, and they interviewed three families, all three of whom thought that they were actually going to get hurt by the tax bill. All three were huge winners under the bill the president signed into law. And it was just a reminder to me that you need to, I would tell him anytime he, the vice president, his administration, anybody comes in the state, they should bring two or three families up on stage and uh, explain what they do. You know, maybe it's a firefighter and a nurse and two kids in junior high and high school at one of our public schools here in the state. And this is how much they save. I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate that. We also asked you, our listeners, especially those of you from Wisconsin, if you had any questions for your former governor. This is a message for Governor Walker from Lance Miller of West Dallas, Wisconsin. Concerning the upcoming recount of the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, you tweeted that Eric Holder and his cronies are coming in to steal the election. Isn't that language a bit harsh? Upon what evidence do you base this claim? Again, Eric Holder has made it clear that his focus was to come in and win elections in 2018, 2019, and 2020. So I take him at his word when he spends money in Wisconsin and uh, he tries to win elections. Scott Walker is the former governor of Wisconsin and the finance chairman of the National Republican Redistricting Trust. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Governor Scott Walker was right about former Attorney General Eric Holder trying to win elections in Wisconsin. Democrats, like Republicans, have been focusing their efforts and resources on the next round of redistricting that will take place in 2021. And Wisconsin, of course, is a very important state. In 2016, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, or NDRC, was launched, and Eric Holder is now its chairman. Here's how he describes its mission to fight the harmful effects of partisan uh, gerrymandering. I asked Holder why he, as a former attorney general, feels that this fight is so important for him to take on. Well, when I was trying to think about my post-government life, uh, I I thought about the kinds of things I wanted to continue to do. I focused as attorney general on the protecting of voting rights. And it seemed to me that um, focusing on this problem of partisan and racial gerrymandering was important, kind of wonky sounding, but really important when you realize the impact that it has on a whole range of other issues, reproductive choice, um, health care, um, you know, whether or not Medicaid gets expanding, voting protection, the environment, um, criminal justice reform, um, sane gun safety measures. All of those things are really connected to who serves in our state legislatures and who serves um, in Congress. And that's determined by how we draw uh, draw the lines. And gerrymandering is an impediment to progress in, uh, in all of those areas. Although gerrymandering's been around since as long as the Republic has been around. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you see this as, as something that's bad? It's, it's not illegal to, to gerrymander. 
Well, it's not illegal, um, but it is certainly something that is extremely pernicious. And the fact that it has been around since the beginning of the pub- republic doesn't necessarily mean that we should oh, we should accept it. Uh, Princeton University did a study, and, and they found that the gerrymandering that was done by Republicans in 2011 was the worst uh, gerrymandering of the past half century, the past 50 years. And when you see the impact that it has had in over the course of the last decade in the United States, uh, it, it seemed to me that this was a place for me to focus my efforts and to try to come up with a way in which we just made the system fair. And that's one thing I really want to emphasize. The NDRC is not um, an organization that's trying to gerrymander for Democrats. We're just trying to make the system fair, make this a battle between Republican and conservative ideas against Democratic and, and progressive ideas. And I think that if it's a fair battle, Democrats and progressives will do uh, will do just fine. Scott Walker has actually tweeted a couple of times about Eric Holder. In one of those tweets from about a month ago, he said, my role is to counter Eric Holder's efforts and, quote, the GOP must fight for fair maps. I asked Holder for his response to that. It, it is almost laughable to think that <laughs> that tweet or those words could come out of uh, Scott Walker's mouth. The reality is that he is one of the architects of one of the worst gerrymanders um, in the United States. If you look at at Wisconsin, uh, you know where you have seen uh, Democrats get over fifty percent, over fifty five percent, as I remember, of the um, the vote with regard to the state legislature, and have only like thirty four, about a third of the seats in the in the state legislature, and it's really just a function of how the lines um, were drawn. The Republicans had a thing called Project Red Map that they used to great effect in 2011. Scott Walker is a a person who really used um, that technique to draw the lines in Wisconsin in such a way that um, Republicans are advantaged and Democrats are unfairly, and I would say unconstitutionally, um, disadvantaged. Gerrymandering isn't a new concept. It's a game both sides have played for a long, long time. So why does it seem like Democrats were so caught off guard by the Republicans' aggressive efforts in 2011? And it's not like Republicans hid their intention. Here's a headline of a Wall Street Journal column written by GOP strategist Karl Rove in March of 2010. It reads, he who controls redistricting can control Congress. Yeah, I think your observation really is is a good one. I I think that Republicans focused on the issue of redistricting in 2011 to a far greater degree than Democrats did. And we we simply have to do a better job of focusing on these state and local issues, not focus on the presidency at the expense of focusing at all on these um, state and local issues. They gained a great deal of power as a result of the, as President Obama expressed it, the shellacking that happened in in 2010. And so I guess we thought we cannot allow that to have happen in 2021. Which ha- that which happened in, um, in 2011, and that's why the NDRC um, was born. But again, really to try to kind of level the playing field. I mean, I'm confident enough that I will simply say, let's make this fair. And for instance, one of the things that we stand for uh, is doing redistricting by nonpartisan commissions. Thinking through what Republicans were able to do in 2011 with the Red Map project, do you consider what they did to be cheating? Yeah, I, I think at, at at a basic level, people ask me to explain, you know, what is gerrymandering? And that's kind of one of the default things that I say. All right, I'm going to try to explain this to you. It gets a little wonky, maybe a little difficult to understand. But at base, gerrymandering is cheating. 
because the American notion of um, a fair election is one where every vote counts, where every vote is weighted in the same way, you know, one person, one vote. It's kind of a cardinal principle of, of American democracy. And gerrymandering really stands that on its head. So, yeah, I think partisan and racial gerrymandering is very damaging and it is cheating. Do you think Democrats writ large would be okay with the idea that thanks to your work at the the, um, NDRC, you have fewer really significant gerrymanders, you have more nonpartisan commissions, and maybe Democrats just don't get as many favorable seats drawn for them, either in the legislature or Congress. You think Democrats are going to be okay with that? Some will not be okay with that. That is a reality. You know, there will be some Democratic districts that might drop from, I don't know, say 80% Democratic down to 50% or 45%, you know, something along those lines. But what I would say to those Democrats is that you should have faith both in your policy positions and in your ability to connect with uh, the voters in your districts, whether that is a state district or a, a federal district, and make the case. Because I think when it comes to policies and a vision for uh, America in the 21st century, Democrats really have all the best ideas. And we ought to have confidence in that and be prepared to have a fairly drawn um, electoral system, have a fair redistricting process in 2021. And if that means more contested elections, A, that's good for the United States of America, but B, overall, it'll be good for the Democratic Party. I want to just go to Wisconsin for a minute and ask you about a state Supreme Court race that took place just this week. You had gone out and campaigned for the, they don't affiliate by party there, but the person who was considered really more of the liberal or Democratic candidate. She, it looks like, did not win. It's a, it was a very, very close race. There may be a recount. Tell me, first of all, why did you get involved in a state Supreme Court case in Wisconsin? And number two, what does it tell you that she came up short? Well, we got involved in that race as we got involved in the race for the Supreme Court in Wisconsin last year because we looked across um, the United States, identified what our target states were going to be, and then within those states identified those people in elected office who could have an impact on the redistricting process or making rulings on the fairness of the redistricting process. And Supreme Courts are obviously places where these questions can be resolved. Now, it looks at this point as if it's going to go to a a recount. And I think that's a wake-up call for everybody in the Democratic Party to the extent that we had been on a bit of a roll in Wisconsin and that maybe people were thinking, okay, we have reconstructed the blue wall, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, places that Trump won in 2016. This is kind of a a wake-up call for people to understand that uh, Republicans are going to do all that they possibly can to protect that which they won in 2016 and that which they gained as a result of the gerrymander of of 2011. I mean, in the last week, Republicans poured about a million dollars into the race for Lisa Neubauer's um, opponent. Now, I don't know what the impact of of that money was, but I, I saw the ads where they tried to nationalize the race and had a picture of Donald Trump in the ad and a picture of Donald Trump with um, with Justice Kavanaugh. And so uh, Democrats need to understand that Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, I mean, the industrial Midwest is someplace that we cannot take for granted and where we're really going to have to fight when it comes to 2020. I also asked the former attorney general his thoughts on how the current attorney general, William Barr, has handled the Mueller investigation. 
we are ideologically very different, but I've always thought of him as an, as an honest broker, um, you know, as I said, a man of integrity. I'm a little concerned about the way in which he has handled that four-page summary report, I'm not sure how, whatever he calls it, of the, the Mueller investigation. Um, and now I'm, there are these news reports that seem to indicate that what he said is not totally consistent with what, what Bob Mueller found. And it makes me wor- worry just a bit about what's going on here. And it, it certainly makes clear that the report in its entirety, along with all of the attachments, has at a minimum got to go to Congress and as much of the report as can be shared with the public, um, that, that must be done. And the other news this week, of course, which has to do with former Vice President Joe Biden and allegations of inappropriate contact. I know Joe Biden, you know, and um, there's not uh, a malevolent, sexist bone in his in his body. Um, you know, he's perhaps too um, demonstrative sometimes in the showing of his affection for people or his too demonstrative in his desire to show his support for um, for people. And, you know, to the extent that that's a fault, um, it's not the worst one in the world, but needs to be calibrated for, um, for our new times. And then on that controversial idea that's getting play in Democratic circles, adding more justices to the Supreme Court, also known as court packing. Supreme Court, you know, there I was, yeah, I, I was kind of musing there. Um, and it was in reaction to that which I've seen Mitch McConnell do with regard to the Supreme Court specifically and the courts um, more generally. Eric Holder was the Attorney General of the United States from 2009 to 2015. He's now chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Gerrymandering or manipulating the boundaries of an electoral district is not illegal. Well, not exactly. Racial gerrymandering is illegal, and an extreme level of partisan gerrymandering might be illegal, but the courts have not really been able to decide on that. The Supreme Court has really struggled with gerrymandering as a one-sentence way to describe it. That's Amy Howe. She's co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. And now that the Supreme Court is hearing two new gerrymandering cases, I checked in with her to get a bit of history about how they've decided cases like these in the past. 13 or 14 years ago, they had a case out of Pennsylvania. It was a challenge to a redistricting plan there. And the justices were, as they so often are, deeply divided. The court's more conservative justices at the time, four of them, said, no way. We need to just stay out of this partisan gerrymandering business. You can't come up with a workable standard to determine whether something is a partisan gerrymander. The court's four more liberal justices at the time said courts can absolutely review these claims of partisan gerrymandering. And the center at the time, as he was until very recently, was Justice Anthony Kennedy. And he said, I don't want to close the door on the possibility that we could find a workable standard someday, but I'm going to vote with the more conservative justices in this case and throw it out. So what's the argument that the conservatives make for the court not getting in and that the liberals make for the court setting the standard? There are a couple of different arguments that the courts make for not getting involved. One is that there isn't a workable standard, that whatever standard you're going to come up with is going to be what the chief justice called sociological gobbledygook. I can only describe a sociological gobbledygook. Um, Another argument is 
that it really is going to hurt the institutional reputation of the courts if they start getting involved in these partisan gerrymandering claims. That the public is going to see it as the Supreme Court decided for the Democrats or、mm-hmm. for the Republicans. And then another argument that the conservative justices have made is that there are other ways to take care of it. Most notably, the independent. Redistricting commissions that some states、mm. have set up these neutral redistricting commissions made up of a certain number of Democrats, a certain number of Republicans, a couple of independents to try to take the partisanship out of redistricting.、Um, sort of an interesting side note on that argument is that the Supreme Court maybe four or five years ago actually had a case that was a challenge to Arizona's independent redistricting commission. In which the Supreme Court upheld Arizona's redistricting commission, rejected the challenge to it, but that was itself a five-four vote. So I think that the liberal justices, in particular, don't necessarily regard that as something you want to rest your hat on. From what you saw in the most recent arguments in front of the Supreme Court regarding North Carolina and Maryland's maps. Do you see that the court is just as reluctant to get involved in making decisions about gerrymandering as they were in previous cases? I think there was less sort of hand wringing about how difficult this is. There was also very little discussion of whether or not the challengers in this case have a legal right to sue. So I don't necessarily see any sort of off ramp. It seems like this might really be the set of cases in which they decide once and for all whether they're going to get involved、mm. in partisan gerrymandering cases. It's still not really clear what they're going to do. Justice Anthony Kennedy seemed like he was the swing vote until he retired. Justice Brett Kavanaugh. No one really had any sense of where he was. He asked questions that seemed to go in both directions. You know, it seems like whatever happens, the justices are going to be deeply divided. But it does seem like they're going to resolve this issue one way or the other this time. So resolving it one way or the other, they could say the courts have no role in this. That could definitely be one of the ways they could resolve these cases. Or say these are the standards that should be used, and if they're not, then they will come before us, and we will determine whether or not they met those standards. That's right. And one of the problems that they face, and it's something that Justice Elena Kagan, who's one of the more strategic justices in her questions at oral argument, was trying to address, is The prospect, which all of them clearly dislike, that they will become a sort of redistricting court. One of the unusual things about redistricting cases is that if you file a, a redistricting case, they start out in a three-judge district court, and then the loser can appeal directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. You skip the federal court of appeals. And you have a more or less mandatory right to appeal to the Supreme Court. It's not a discretionary appeal the way almost all other Supreme Court cases are. And so there are a couple of things about partisan gerrymandering that I think all of the justices can agree on, which is that they do all think it's a bad thing, even if they can't necessarily agree on what to do about it. And they all are all horrified by the idea of 
having, you know, a regular set of partisan gerrymandering cases come before them every time that there's a new right, census, every 10 a new years set of data. Yes. I mean, we're still dealing with the last, it's 2019, we're still dealing with the last round of, of cases from the 2010 census. And in a couple of weeks, the Supreme Court's going to hear oral arguments about the 2020 census, and they're going to conduct the 2020 census and could kick off another round of redistricting cases. Right. So it just will never end. An endless cycle. An endless 10-year cycle. Yes. Amy Howe, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk to you. Amy Howe is the co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. I wanted to close the show with Katie Fahey. She's the Michigan woman who we heard at the top of the show. She had no prior political experience, but managed to win a hard-fought campaign to put the power of redistricting into the hands of an independent commission. Here she is speaking on election night 2018. This is not a moment, but a movement. The people of our country are sick of this. And if we don't come and say that enough is enough, then nothing's going to change. But we have proven that you can keep your integrity. You can make it so that you can invite anyone to the table. You can operate a campaign in a transparent way where we actually trust the people of our state to make decisions. And it ends up in a beautiful result that unites thousands of people and is about to unite millions of people. It mattered that you showed up. It mattered that you knocked doors. It mattered that you gathered signatures and stood in the rain and the cold and the heat, all of that mattered. For generations of people, your sacrifices have changed our Constitution. The Michigan State Constitution opens with all political power is inherent in the people. We are those people. This is our power. Let's go have an independent citizens redistricting commission that restores faith in democracy. Cheers. Her story reminds us of the power everyday people have in our political process. But here's the thing. You don't have to start a statewide campaign to have a voice. It's a lot easier than that. Yes, a big reason for our political dysfunction is thanks to the significant number of safe seats made possible by gerrymandering. The only election many politicians have to worry about is in their primary. But guess what? Very few people vote in primaries, and that means the voices of those on the political edges carry more weight. But if you and lots of others show up to vote, those voices and views get diluted. The district will stay red or blue, but it could still make a big difference in the type of people we send to Washington, ones who may be more willing to compromise or less willing to grandstand. It won't get you your own documentary, but it can make a difference. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook, and of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>